0: Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello, welcome to this episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. My name is James. I'm really delighted today to be joined by Dr. Natalie King, who's a consultant acute physician and clinical director for emergency care at Surrey and Sussex Hospital and also the head of the Kent Surrey and Sussex School of Physician Associates, and Dr. King also sits on the FPA board as a representative for physicians. Hi, Natalie. Thanks so much for joining us on the show.
1: Morning, James. Lovely to speak to you.
0: I guess my first question to ask you was when did you first hear about physician associates?
1: I think I was kind of lucky because I grew up around physician associates. I was um, an elderly care registrar at St. George's Hospital back in the day, and I came across a lady called Jeannie Watkins, and I came across her at St. George's and the programme um, that. that they were developing. I then became a registrar at Epsom. And this was in the days where you could have a list of 60 odd patients each day. Um, and I walked in one day to find I had 60 odd patients to see. And I was pretty much on my own. And I met a young lady called Rachel Pyman. And she was a PA student from St. George's. And she literally blew me away with what she could do, um, how she enabled me to get around those patients and give good care and get all the jobs done and over a period she was with us i think for about six weeks we became great friends we learned how to work really well together Um, and latterly some years later i was delighted she was one of the first pa's that qualified pa's that i employed when i was a uh, joined east surrey hospital as a consultant so i joined as a consultant in 2011 and Within about a year of starting, the course director at St George's asked me if I would take some students and it kind of snowballed from there. We had the opportunity to look at our rotors because we saw that patients were starting to come in later in the afternoon. And as a result of that, we put a business case together to restructure our ward staffing. Because obviously if you introduce a new shift at the front door, you're taking away potentially staff from the wards. And so as part of that business plan that included a raft of trust doctors. We created a business case for eight PAs. And so we dropped in these new eight physician associates into a trust that had never had them before, apart from the students. And so we started with eight back in 2012. And now we're what, 2021. And I think we've got nearly 30. And we've got PAs working in, in all of the divisions in women and children's, medicine, surgery, and also within the emergency department. I think over time, as we've expanded our numbers, we've been very cautious to do that in a, a very planned way so that the PAs were supported and developed you know, to, to become really what they wanted to become, but also realising what they could do within their departments and many of whom have, have, have stayed with us, which has been an absolute delight. You know, To have a member of staff that stays with you for eight years is testament to that staff member, but also in showing us that we were probably getting it right. I'm not saying we've got it right all the time, but, you know, to look at a PA that started on day one, who's still with us eight years, nine years later, the growth that that PA has gone through and actually the versatility of the role and how that's developed been, you know, probably one of the biggest success stories for us as a trust. And I think that's helped to build our PA army, if you like, up to the numbers that we've got today. I think the growth is really important and I think there's always strength in numbers. One of the things I always advise when I talk to employers across the UK is, you know, if you're going to just dabble and have one or two, you're probably not creating an environment where that PA will want to stay. I think you have to to develop, get to a number where you've got a critical mass, where they have some influence and are able to self-determine, if you like, and have that peer-to-peer support, which I think is really important. But I'd also caution any employers around expanding too rapidly I mean, I have seen some trusts that have gone to, you know, naught to 60 in a year. And that's really difficult because you've often brought the PAs in with perhaps not the right port structures or governance behind it. And I think that that for me was a risk um, that, that we didn't want to take. We really wanted to do it in a much more planned fashion. So although we are a big employer of PAs, we've we've done that over a longer period of time and really appreciating, know, and understanding the role better to to absolutely get the best from the PA and also give the best back in return.
0: That leads me on to the next questions I had. Um, As an organisation, what processes or steps did you have to put in place to help establish those PAs and and make it a success?
1: So I think when you when you look back to two thousand and twelve, obviously at that time there were probably you know only one hundred and fifty or so PAs in the country. So understandably, most organisations were quite anxious about what that new role would be, how it would fit in, uh, and then the more kind of governance aspects around the supervision, what that looks like, who takes the responsibility for the PA when they're working. So I think we were really lucky, number one, that we had a very inclusive executive team. So my chief executive, Michael Wilson, is who's also the executive sponsor for the School of PAs, You know, really had a good vision about what alternative roles and new roles could do um, within teams because, you know, as, as all of us know, A lot of the jobs that doctors do doesn't need a doctor to do it. It needs a skill set, and it really doesn't matter what the title is. Patients really don't mind at all. But we had to be mindful that introducing a new role can create anxiety, particularly among staff members. I remember uh, nurse practitioners particularly feeling quite anxious about the PA coming in and taking over their, their role, and one of them asking me if they'd need to retrain had to become a PA and I, it, hmm. it took some time for them to appreciate that the role slightly different. So, we had to think about that kind of groundwork, what we had to do in advance. We did quite a lot of PR um, in talking to the existing staff about why we were bringing PAs in. A lot of what you, you read over time is around sometimes junior doctors hesitancy around PAs, you know, taking roles that would have been for doctors. And what we had to be really clear about was that we weren't rep- placing a doctor with a PA, we were adding a PA to a team, which did expand the numbers, if you like, but it also widened the access for patients to care. So we did a lot of positive PR work around what, what PAs were there to do and how they work within the team. We wanted to be really clear to the, to the PAs coming in, what we expected of them, and what we would Allow them to do what we wouldn't allow them to do for their own safety and their own, so that they were kept within their their competencies and didn't feel the need to be pushed or step out of them. But we also wanted to make make it clear for the other staff members, you know, this is what a PA can do, this is what they can't do, and then over time we've then started to say, well, let's think now about what the PA could do um, rather than focusing on the things that that they can't. So we wrote a blueprint governance policy which really covered those aspects. You know, when you work in a big trust, you've got millions and millions of different policies floating around and we couldn't adapt each one to incorporate what, you know, how that would affect a PA's working. So we wrote wrote one inclusive policy, if you like, that covered all of those aspects. We also put in quite a lot of stuff into the governance policy around supervision and what that looked like for a PA and our expectations of the PA in terms of their personal development and their appraisal as well as some of their more kind of contractual obligations, you know, how to take annual leave, how to take study leave. And I think those fundamentals were really helpful, particularly when you were bringing in this new role. You know, we had supervisors that were very used to supervising doctors, but clearly didn't, you know, have a clue about how you would supervise a PA and, and that, that difference, which is, you know, very much a difference from, from supervising uh, their, their junior doctors
0: that they'd done before. You mentioned about AMPs and some mm-hmm. of the tension sometimes between AMPs and PAs, and you said that they're quite different roles. Hmm. How do you answer that question about the differences between an, an AMP and a PA?
1: So I, we actually, we have within acute medicine, we've got four ANPs who are all ex- extremely experienced nurses who have gone through additional development and training um, to go through that ANP journey. And th- these nurses have got 10 15 years of acute medicine experience. So they're incredibly skilled and knowledgeable about acute medicine. PAs that come in in acute medicine have a much broader knowledge base, if you like. So for me, it was about building skills. And it's only after working with them for a, a period of time and watching them work together that you start looking at actually, they have lots of commonalities in some of the skills that they do, some of the jobs that they do. And actually, they're really complementary but PAs are trained in the medical model and the nurse practitioners are trained in a nursing model with you know, additional skills. What I found is, I take it back to the same comment I said at the beginning, when you look at your work, your demand on the shop floor, it's who's the best person to deliver that skill. And it really doesn't matter what the title is on your badge. They just add an additional level that expands the team, makes them more efficient. Both nurse practitioners and PAs usually have great departmental knowledge if they've been there a long time. And that in itself, you know, drives huge efficiency. You can ask any of our nurse practitioners, you know, how to get stuff done. Equally, you can ask our PAs that have been with us for a period of time, how to get stuff done. But the PAs, as you know, the whole point of of them is that they are incredibly flexible. So if as an employer with my employer's hat on, I said to my PAs, acute medicine doesn't have any demand anymore. You know, we don't have any patients, but actually surgery does. I could move those PAs tomorrow if they wanted to, to go and support a different service. Whereas the nurse practitioners wouldn't be able to move so easily because they've got 10, 15 years of experience in acute medicine. They would never say that they were surgical nurses. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: For me, it's all about skill mix. It's not about who you are. It's about the skills you bring to the table and what you can do for the patients. There's a lot to be said about uh, PAs really being ambassadors for their profession and and taking every opportunity to tell patients because it is the missing piece. I, I get lots of positive compliments from patients, you know, saying that they saw Doctor Rob yesterday, for example, and it wasn't Doctor Rob, it was PA Rob. And I know Rob would have introduced himself as a PA, but patients don't see that. But then I'm, you know, I'm a consultant. I've been a doctor for 20 years, and I still get called nurse. Yeah. It, it, the patients really don't mind at the end of the day, providing they're getting the right care. And as early as possible.
0: That's a brilliant answer, thank you.
1: And I think if you if you're running a service, what you try and do is is you look at the aspects of the service where that skill blend is is maximized.
0: You touched on introducing physician associates into your trust and that there may have been a bit of hesitancy or some resistance. Do you want to expand on on how best to overcome?
1: Like with anything new, people are fearful of change and it's a fear of the unknown. You know, the example I would give is is the email I received from one of our F1s this week that said when she started and I run ward round training for all of our F1s when they start. And actually, I use our really highly skilled PAs at delivering um, simulated ward round training for the F1s because I want them to see that actually the PAs are incredibly skilled at ward rounds and that the F1s can learn a lot from them. But this particular F1 emailed me to say that she'd you know, she been through that training at the beginning and she was really hesitant about it. She'd not come across the role or worked with a PA before. And she was quite anxious about what that would look like on award. And she sent me a really long email to really highlight how her view has completely changed by working with a PA. And I think you can do all of the groundwork and the PR and you can tell people this is what the PAs are here to do. This is how they're going to help you. But actually, the proof is really only in the pudding once you work with them and you really see, wow, they are making my life so much easier, that that that's really when you're going to change the hearts and minds. You can do all the prep work you like, which does help and absolutely is imperative to do. But the PAs are really vital in in, in bringing those hearts and minds round. And I know it probably gets quite tiring for PAs. And I, I see it on Twitter all the time with PAs saying, you know, I've gone into a, a new F1s coming and I have to go through the whole thing again, talking to them about what I do. But that's how they're going to build their own brand, you know. That's how they become those ambassadors. It's what I say to the students when they come on placement with us. This is your best job interview because you're going to spend the next six weeks with us, and you're going to show those that don't yet fully buy into the concept actually, you're going to blow them away. Um, one of the things that we did about two years ago is that we put a PA on weekends as additional duties. So our, our PAs in medicine largely don't don't work weekends because we employed them to work weekdays to offer that continuity. But we did put in an extra weekend shift and we put them linked with the ward cover registrar. Um, the ward cover registrar job is usually really hard work. Um, it's just one patient after another. It's a list of ward jobs, reviews, discharges. And there's a lot of that process and work that doesn't require you know, a highly experienced medical registrar to do it. So we, we offered this shift to our PAs and universally, the, the registrars have fed back how much more efficient they've become by having a PA with them. And then the feedback from the PAs is they found it fantastic opportunity for one-to-one teaching and learning. Um, and so that's been a really good way of, of also as a byproduct getting that buy-in, if you like, um, from some of the, the, the registrars perhaps that would have been a bit more hesitant about what PAs can do. And particularly for our senior PAs, you know, who have been with us for eight or nine years, you know, they are fundamental members of the of the ward team. All of the teams know them. So it's when the doctors come in and change over in August, they learn very quickly that our PAs are highly respected um, and are trusted and that we have, you know, robust governance and support behind them.
0: Absolutely. The more I find the more people work with PAs, the more they like us and the more they want more of us.
1: I say this to supervisors as well. For a supervisor and PA, that relationship absolutely is vital. You have to get on. And I think it's just about making sure that people are aware of that and that you shouldn't form your opinions based on one individual.
0: If PAs are out there working at the moment and not getting that supervision, what do you think they should do about it?
1: I think it's really difficult to to stipulate to any employer what that should look like because I know there are different models out there I mean, in terms of your FPA registration, and I mean, that will change when we have regulation with the GMC, but in terms of your your managed voluntary register, you have to have a named supervisor. So for appraisal purposes, you need somebody who is there to support your development. That might be your supervisor. It might not be. So for doctors, my appraiser is not my line manager, and it's not somebody who is a mentor to me. It's, a, it's a, someone who's been trained in appraisal. And I also have a line manager. For PAs, so I'll give the the example of our trust, which is slightly different. So historically, when we first started with PAs, I was the sort of self-nominated PA champion. So I looked after kind of the the general interests of the eight PAs that we employed. Because they sat within my budget line, I was also the line manager. And for me, that felt slightly wrong because if I had to manage someone's performance, you know, and Worst case scenario, someone was performing badly. That would be for me a conflict because I'm there to develop them. But I also would need to be able to performance manage someone. It's for me, it's a hybrid. It's not an educational supervisor. It's not a clinical supervisor. It's a combination of both. But it's also partly a mentor and it's also partly a coach. You know, we I I use the analogy about a a roadmap and a guide. You know, the, the PA has the map. My my job as a supervisor is to be the guide to show them which way round and open up opportunities for the PA.
0: And is that built into that consultant's job plan?
1: No, not really, because I'm asked that all the time as a supervisor. People say to me, well, how how long do you need in your job plan to supervise a PA? And it's not the same as educational supervision where you get given, you know, one uh, one hour a week per educational trainee you have i don't sit down with um, my pa for an hour every week what i probably do is text her three or four times a day um catch her in the corridor we go and have a coffee because it's a much more informal relationship it isn't that line management that's why it's different if your super your supervisor becomes you become a collaboration if you like um and so it's a much more informal arrangement rather than the the kind of supervisor meetings where you sit down and look at objectives and also say you know appreciate their skill mix what they've background they may have you know so many of our PAs historically have come from industry outside of the NHS that have huge skill set that they can bring to the table but people don't ask them you know.
0: Shall shall I ask you about how you've noticed PAs expanding and the success that it's been at SESH? Um, And what you've noticed having the unique opportunity, I guess, of having had PAs in an organization for a longer period of time than most others?
1: One of the most commonly asked questions of me is about PA development, what that looks like, what career progression is. Um, And there's lots of conversation, isn't there, around um, what career progression looks like for PAs. And I think it will vary dependent on the individual, and it should vary dependent on the individual. We've noticed a kind of different ways that PAs have developed at SASH. So I'll give you a few examples which might help. So some our original eight PAs were employed as permanent members of staff within their department. So many of those that have stayed within their department have acquired huge specialist knowledge within their area. So Dan, he won't mind me mentioning him, he's worked in respiratory medicine since he started with us. And with his relationship with his supervising consultants, his area of interest, his area of expertise has developed very much as a mirror of what his supervisors are interested in. So Dan has worked with someone with an interest in pulmonary hypertension and therefore Dan mirroring that has also learned a huge amount about pulmonary hypertension far more than I'll ever know. Um, he's also, you know, very competent in plural drains, practical procedures that were outside of what you would say is the, you know, the the standard uh, practical skills that PAS would do. One thing I've noticed more recently is for some of those more senior PAS who have got many years of experience, is that if you expect them to still be doing all of the same ward level duties all of the time, that can become quite boring, quite monotonous, and actually the challenge. There is how do you allow them to be more autonomous but still fulfill the role that they were employed to do? Because obviously a PA role is not a training role, a PA role is a service role. So how do you make sure you're meeting what you need as a service with your PAs, but also ensuring that they've still got room to grow? Uh, And that really is what led to us thinking about split roles. So we know, don't we, that, that PAs working in general practice historically, they've they've felt fearful of doing that. In the early years after qualification, because they didn't feel quite ready for it, and it can be quite isolating. But because you do have more time where you're working more autonomously on your own, and actually, what we found is the thing that put the fear in the the younger I shouldn't say younger uh, the the least experienced PAS actually was the driver for our senior PAS because that's exactly what they were craving. Mm-hmm. Um, two of our PAs that do split roles, one in uh, does acute medicine and general practice, and the other does elderly care and general practice. That's been an absolute win for us, that they do half of their time in the hospital, still doing the work uh, that they do as a PA, but with huge experience in their clinical area. And then they take that experience out into general practice. And for example, Sam, who's the PA that does elderly care, she's setting up the frailty service within the PCN. And that's incredible for her. That's allowed her ceiling of development, if you like, to suddenly go sky high. But equally, she still wanted to keep up those acute skills that she has within the hospital. So I've seen this this development and career progression really, the PAs carving it out themselves. I'm a great fan of having some structure around career progression. So having that support structure to help PAs and also to help the supervisors in supervising their PAs better. But also, if you were too prescriptive, you could really restrict that.
0: That's one of the things I like most about being a PA, is that there are really no rules about how to work, where to work, what your career development might look like. If you have an idea or a passion or a drive to do something in a different way, go for it. Um, But
1: I do wonder, James, when you think about it, and we've had conversations about this the, the PAs that are coming through the programs more recently, and maybe that's because they've gone from undergraduate straight into physician associate studies, I don't know, but they seem to be far more wanting more structure, more career progression, more definition of what that looks like. And many of whom align that to wanting some kind of post, you know, post-qualification curriculum within specialties. And I think you've got to have a mix for all, but I do think that the 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 line in the sand is slightly moving, if you like. Um, And that, that what I think PAs have wanted historically, I think is changing. And I think what the FPA are really keen to do is make sure that they're, you know, in, encompassing all of those ideas and all of the feedback from, from the working PAs to actually understand what it is they do want in the future, because I think it varies.
0: I think you're right. There's different horses for different courses and there? there's some PAs that will want to be in cardiology and develop maybe yep. as a cardiology doctor might uh, there might be other PAs who really like working across PCNs or across hospital and, and GP settings or setting up community services so There's there's different ways for everybody to work differently. Yeah
1: and I think one of the challenges going ahead for the profession is around how PAs are, re- are rewarded for that so how do you reward a PA that's exceptional how do you reward a PA that that goes above and beyond, you know, and is doing innovative new things? Because the the pay structure on Agenda for Change is there for a reason and it's there to be fair and transparent. But if you're, you know, someone who's at the top of your banding and taking on additional things, how, how do you reward a PA for doing that?
0: That's an interesting question. Do you see PAs? I mean, I know you can only speak from your own experience, but do you see PAs staying on Agenda for Change in the long term or do you think something more like the medical and dental contracts might I think
1: it would be politically very difficult. The problem I have with Agenda for Change for PAs is that it doesn't appreciate that PAs can move specialties. And so how do you reflect in a pay somebody who has, say, you know, been eight years in one specialty and then they move to a specialty that's different where they don't have that experience so it it doesn't work basically agenda for change doesn't work i think aligning it with medical and dental pay would be a poor decision as well it almost needs its own you know its its own pay structure
0: yeah that's true perhaps that is the answer we have to make it ourselves if trusts are thinking about employing physician associates going to ask you to give away all your secrets now. What do you think makes an attractive job advert for them to to help them recruit PAs?
1: I think having a really clear job plan that offers some variety, but is an honest job plan. So actually what your working week is going to look like, if you put too much variety into your job plan, you as an employer are never going to achieve what you wanted by having the PA in. So I see a lot of job plans that have got you know, eight or nine different activities across the week. And my counsel to them would be it's too varied. So the PA will just feel lost in that chaos. They'll be jumping from one thing to another and never get settled in one area. And importantly, they won't build those really, really important relationships with the people that they're working with. And so you could have a PA in a very high variety job for a year. And when they leave, people won't really notice because they'll have been in so many different places. You need variety to allow development and you need variety if you want to retain a PA for a long time so that they have that opportunity to do something different, not be on ward rounds. I'm talking from a secondary care perspective, but not be on ward rounds Monday to Friday and just doing jobs every day. That's also not going to keep your PA. But if you put too much into it, your PA will just get lost. The advert itself really should make it clear what your expectations are for the PA where I've seen sometimes it it go wrong is where there's a mismatch. So the PA coming into, for example, I don't know, surgery and thinking they're going to be going to theatre every day. And actually they don't, they just get landed on the ward each day. Making sure that what you're promising and you're offering the PA is actually what you can deliver as an employer. Balancing that with the needs of actually what you are employing them for. That's excellent.
0: Thank you. Where would you point um, people who've been listening to this podcast for further sources of information and to find out a bit more.
1: So there's there's lots of information available on the FPA website. There's also an employer's guide within there, and also documentation around appraisal and what that looks like for PA. It's based very much on a doctor-style medical appraisal. There's also the KSS School of Physician Associates website. Uh, within there got lots of resources and also some videos where we talk about different aspects of employing and supervising PAs. So I would certainly slightly biasly, point you to those, those sources.
0: Absolutely. I can vouch for how useful those resources have been. And also speaking to your local physician associate ambassador with your Health Education England regional office can also yep. help link you in across primary care or secondary care to find out a bit more about PAs locally.
1: Yes, absolutely. And there's a whole network across the UK of PA ambassadors. And we know, certainly within KSS, we've got two PAAs, one of which focuses on secondary care and the other primary care. So yeah, that's also a fantastic personal link that you can build a relationship with a PA working in your region to help support, support you in bringing PAs.
0: Brilliant.
1: For so long, so many people have focused on the restrictions on PAs practice in terms of ordering x-rays and and prescribing both of which have never been for me any kind of problem in applying their role in the workplace we certainly have very clear and robust mechanisms of of how we avoid circumstances where PAs feel that they may have to step outside of their competence which they don't but i think having validation from the GMC that the PAs are a recognised you know highly respected profession I think is really important for the PAs themselves. Yes, GMC regulation will alter in terms of PA's accountability in the longer term, but I think most PAs are accountable for their own practice anyway. Uh, I think having the GMC support structures around it will be really important for for the PA professional growth. I think that the profession itself, once it has that underpinning, will have a lot more. Um, validity in the workplace. And I think it will also encourage more employers to think about PAs just by having that, that branding, if you like. There's a huge amount of work that the GMC are putting into what that framework is for PAs, what that will look like, how that will affect um recertification. Um, and very much align that with the same principles of good medical practice that that I signed up to um, uh, when I, you know, when I joined the GMC register. And I think all of those things will ultimately really give assurance that the care that PAs provide to patients is safe and it's effective and that it is, you know, meeting all of those requirements that the GMC put on on their members uh, to ensure that they are
0: safe practitioners. Is there any work that you would advise trusts need to be thinking about doing now ahead of GMC regulation?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that ensuring that you've got Uh, a robust governance around the PAs uh, in terms of setting it very clearly what they can and can't do um, and also ensuring that you've got an appraisal process set up for the PAs uh, will be really important in supporting your PAs to be able to provide the evidence they do to maintain their GMC registration. Um, I also think as part of that appraisal process, it's really important to check that all of your PAs are still on the managed voluntary register because historically, we have found, not personally, but I have heard of stories where PAs have joined the MVR as part of their contractual employment, but it's not checked each year. Um, and as it is a voluntary registry currently, uh, currently that some PAs haven't renewed their registration, which will make it much more difficult for them or more challenging uh, for them to automatically move over to the GMC registration when it's open.
0: Thanks, Dr. King. I guess my last question would be around if people have heard the episode, are you happy for them to get in touch with you?
1: Absolutely. Um, you're very welcome to email the KSS School of PAs. If you look on our website, if you Google KSS School of PAs, there's an email address that you can contact. Uh, and both myself and Joe Piper, who's our program manager for the school, and Michelle Chapman, who's our lead PA for Kent Surrey and Sussex School of PAs, uh, we all have access to that. So we would be very happy to uh help provide any advice or answer any questions if we can
0: perfect thank you and i'll leave a link to the kss website in the show notes for the podcast episode so people can find it there thanks so much for joining us
1: you're welcome (laughs) it's been great fun thanks for listening to
0: the precision associate podcast